As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Mandy sent us a message on uh, Facebook. This is hilarious. Remember the thing in the middle we did a couple of episodes ago about the uh, meat-thieving ravens? <laughs> yes, the, the bird thieves. At uh, the Costco in Anchorage. Uh, Mandy writes and said, I was listening to one of your more recent episodes the other day. You were doing a thing in the middle about Anchorage Costco with the thieving ravens that were stealing things out of people's carts. I literally started cackling like a deranged hyena (laughs) while driving to work. That's my Costco. I can completely confirm that the Anchorage Costco Ravens are constantly plotting and scheming. That's Um, amazing. It's become a citywide joke. It's not just Costco, though. They steal and rummage everywhere. (laughs) I've seen so many hilarious Raven moments here, but my most favorite to date is from eight or nine years ago. I guess this has been going on for a while. (laughs) One day after working a makeup gig, I was exhausted and walking to my truck to load up and go home. It was the end of summer, later in the evening, so this huge parking lot that I was in was almost completely empty. There was a slight breeze, and it was the land of the midnight sun dusky at that point. As I was loading my kit into the passenger side, I looked up, and I saw a raven perched on the corner of the tailgate of an old beat-up red pickup truck parked diagonally to me. He was staring me down, which I couldn't have cared less about, except that he was doing it with a red dum-dum sucker in his beak. (laughs) Fucking hilarious and eerily creepy as shit. I couldn't tell if he wanted to kick my ass or for me to pull up next to him and enjoy the breeze and a dum-dum on my own. Oh my gosh. The dusky, overcast, and gentle breeze really knocked this moment out of the park, though. I tried to get a picture to tease all my friends who were terrified of the ravens, but... (laughs) It just flew away as I was about to take it. I feel bad for the people up here who are afraid of the birds. I like to imagine that trips to Costco for them is like some people's experience trying to make it through those haunted houses and mazes at Halloween. (laughs) 
I have to admit that uh, this tickles my darker humor bones uncontrollably, though. That Mandy sent that. Thanks, Mandy. That's amazing. Once again, it's it's wonderful to tell a story and then hear hear from somebody that actually has firsthand experience. Yeah, and I lollipops can't be good for birds. No, no. And with the beak, how does that even work? I don't know, but I I picture him like with it stuck in the corner of his cheek and his cheeks all bulging out. You know, <laughs> he's got a ball cap on, kind of a skew, looking over his Ray-Bans. <laughs> oh, yeah. Raven's Ray-Bans? Ra- Raven bands, they call them. Right, absolutely. And, and uh, just, you know, staring this chick down like, get the fuck out of my parking lot. <laughs> Last night we were having a bonfire and uh, we were- I, don't, I wouldn't call it a bonfire. What was it? Well, it's just a fire. A fire in a fire pit. Yeah. Yeah. So fire pit fire. We're having a fire pit fire last night sitting around and the uh, topic of Hamilton came up and how much we really enjoyed uh, watching that. In fact, mm-hmm. we're due to watch it again, I think, yeah. in the near future. Absolutely. But that got me thinking about founding fathers oh. of the United States. We're familiar with many of them. You know, Washington, Hamilton, Franklin and Adams. I, I want to make my What's own. Happening? I want to make my own musical. Oh, I have no doubt that it would be wonderful. But have you heard of Governor Morris? Governor Morris. Yeah, we've heard of all of those guys, John Hancock and Madison and Jefferson. He was an equally important founding father, but uh, really a very eccentric dude. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you don't hear much about him. And governor, by the way, is not a title; it's his name. Oh, Gov- well, that's excellent. Governor Morris. I love it. It's a real sneaky way to mislead some people. According to Wikipedia, Governor Morris was an American statesman. He was a founding father of the U.S., a signatory of the Articles of Confederation mm-hmm. and the United States Constitution. He wrote the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. Oh, wow. He has been called by history the penman of the Constitution. In an era when most Americans thought of themselves as citizens of their respective individual states, Morris was the one who advanced the idea of being a citizen of a single union of states. A united state. If you will. He was also one of the most outspoken opponents of slavery among those who were present at the Constitutional Convention. He was represented, or he represented New York in the United States Senate, between 1800 and 1803. He was actually the guy who wrote the line, we the people of the United States, probably the most famous phrase in the Constitution. Wow. The original text read, before he came in and edited, uh, the original text read, quote, we the people of the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Providence, Plantation, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, do ordain and declare and establish the following constitution still going for the government of ourselves and our prosperity. Morris changed it to a far more concise concise and, and, and succinct quote to we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. I am a fan already. Yeah. And that's all well and good. But there were a few things that, uh, you know, I'm sure you don't know about because most people don't even know who this guy is. I, I didn't anyway. Maybe maybe you do. Morris apparently liked to have sex in public. 
He was. Uh, yeah, we don't kink shame here. No, no. It's just unusual to think of the guy who wrote the preamble to the Constitution getting it on the balcony of a cruise ship <laughs> or wherever it may be. Ben Franklin liked to air bathe. Well, that's true. It was a different time entirely. Um, It was reported that Morris often did it in weird places, including the Louvre in Paris. He, uh, yeah, he didn't marry until he was 57 years old. Is that why Mona Lisa was smirking? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Like, you wouldn't believe the shit I have seen. (laughs) Uh, He was a bachelor for many years and was known for his romantic trysts. Okay. As a statesman, he traveled to France quite regularly. Uh, There, he had an extended affair with a married woman who lived at the Louvre at the time. This was... Weird. Before the Louvre became an art museum. Oh, okay. It was actually... um, a palace for the French king. Okay, that makes so much more sense. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Governor Morris's lady friend lived there. And Morris kept a diary, which is why we know so much about him and his uh, antics. And he actually had a code word for sex in his diary. He called it celebrating. (laughs) All right, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. According to his diary, he did a lot of celebrating, and he liked to take risks during the act of sex. One of his entries in his diary describes... Like autoerotic risks? Well, or? <laughs> no, no, no. I think just, you know, uh, doing it in places where he could get caught. Okay. He was into that. He described him and his um, mistress, who again was married, in the hallway, doing it in the hallway with the doors open um, while his her husband was there. It said in his diary, go to the Louvre. We take the chance of interruption and celebrate in the passage while Mademoiselle is at the harpsichord in the drawing room. The husband is below. Visitors hourly are expected. The doors are all open and we celebrate. This was a common theme that ran throughout his diary. Oh, my goodness. He recorded these trysts. I mean, we don't celebrate shame. No. uh, But I do think that's really rude. With people in the house. Especially the husband. Yeah, yeah, for sure. At the age of 32, Morris was getting busy with married women. That was his thing. He liked married women, and he liked to do it in a place that he could get caught. That's what he was into. Okay. He was getting busy with a married woman, uh, a different one. This one, uh, according to historian Dave Kimball, this happened in Philadelphia. Morris was known as a ladies' man, a man about town. He found himself in trouble at one point with uh, with one man because the husband, he was the husband of the woman he was dallying with, learned that Morris was getting it on with his wife. And needless to say, he was pissed. The husband interrupted the pair. Oh, no. Mid-coitus. And Morris jumped up and put his pants on and ran out of the house. But the husband followed him. Morris tripped and fell in the street and a carriage ran over his leg. <laughs> And it crushed his leg so badly that he had to have it amputated. No. So he was given a peg leg. And um, a lot of his friends had been warning him about carrying on with married women in risky trysts. Right. Uh, and they, they would tell him, you know, nothing good is going to come from this. Bad things are going to happen. And after this, and he got run over and lost his leg, they thought maybe he would change his ways. I'm guessing no. <laughs> Morris, equipped with his new peg leg, was confronted by his friends. They said, you really need to change your way. Look what's happened. It's cost you your leg. And Morris quipped, quote, You argue the matter so handsomely and point out so clearly the advantages of being without legs that I am almost tempted to part with the other. (laughs) He didn't give a shit. 
And having a peg leg didn't slow him down one little bit. In fact, uh, his friend and fellow founding father, John Jay, told Morris that instead of his leg, he wished that he'd lost his penis instead. Oh, no. For years, Morris kept seducing married women. Governor, you're really, this is becoming a problem. He had a thing for them. Even if it cost him an appendage, he was willing to pay that price. Back in France, the revolution was raging. It was during one of the bloodiest periods of the French Revolution, and he was back over there um, as a diplomat. Historian Forrest MacDonald said that Morris one day was riding in an ornate carriage with one of his married lady friends um, when an anti-aristocratic mob descended upon the carriage and tried to pull them out and, uh, you know, probably kill them. Morris pulled off his wooden leg, shoved it out the window and shouted, Viva la Revolution! Ah! It bewildered the revolutionaries and uh, distracted them enough so that Morris was able to speed off in his carriage and get away. Is that a leg or? There, was, there were also stories of him defending himself from angry husbands by beating them with his wooden leg. No. <laughs> so he was serving as U.S. minister in France during this bloody period of the French Revolution. He was actually an eyewitness to a lot of the reign of terror. Ironically, though, even though he supported the U.S. Revolution, obviously, strongly, right? <laughs> but he also strongly opposed the French Revolution, siding with the monarchy. He even tried to rescue Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette from the revolutionaries. Uh, he failed, obviously, and the revolutionaries cut their heads off. Um, but to remember his time with them, he uh, decided that he would buy all their furniture. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he figured, you know, they're not going to be using it. They don't have heads. Um, so I can get it at a discount. It's like going it's like going to like a French royalty yard sale. It's kind of questionable, yeah. I think. So he bought all her furniture and had it shipped to the Bronx. You know, I always liked that couch. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> now, he did achieve some lasting. Uh, he Now, he did achieve some things of lasting importance that weren't quite as unusual as this, for example, uh, he created the modern plan for Manhattan. Oh wow! Now he grew up in the Bronx. It was rural farmland at the time, uh, but as an adult, he played a central role in shaping the future of New York, according to uh, Ranker, by promoting the Erie Canal. But he will forever. But he forever changed New York City when he was appointed in 1807 to a commission to craft a master plan for the city's. Uh, layout. So in 1811, the commission produced the grid system that we still see today. Oh, wow. 155 streets, 12 avenues. They rejected circles and ovals that dominated European city plans at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, he said that uh, they, they felt that a grid plan would um, allow them to build right angle buildings cheaply. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. It sure does. It's better than Boston, which is just oh. like... Forget that. Yeah. <laughs> that is the worst city to drive in in the world. I love Boston. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I love Boston. Oh, man. Anyway, in order to uh, achieve this grid pattern, they had to tear down 39% of the city. Wow. Because a lot of the houses at the time would have been right in the middle of the streets. So that they, they had to really commit yep, to this plan. They did. <clears throat> and I'm guessing that it wasn't done amicably. No, I'm sure there was a lot of deal making in the back room. As I mentioned, he was 57 before he got married. And when he did marry, 
he uh, shocked the world once again by marrying his housekeeper. But that wasn't all. At a Christmas party in 1809, Morris announced his marriage to Mary Gray Randolph, who was 22 years his junior. Anne was known as Nancy. That was her name. And she had a reputation dating back to eight, uh, 1792. She had been accused many times, many times of adultery, but also murder. Oh. Which wasn't really warranted. The story goes like this. When she was 17, she reportedly slept with her brother-in-law and uh, that, quote, illicit union produced a baby who died shortly after birth. Uh, Nancy was tried for murder. They accused her of murdering the child. Oh. She insisted the baby was stillborn. She was eventually acquitted. Mm-hmm. Um, but she had all this murky stuff in her in her past. And so on, it was just governor once again, like doing the risky thing. Yeah. Like, oh, I guess I'm going to marry this murderer now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> on his wedding day, Morris wrote in his diary, quote, I married this day, Nancy Gray Randolph. No surprise to my guests. <laughs> Well, good. I'm glad they knew what they were in for. Yeah. You hang out with this guy, you have to expect the unexpected. (laughs) Morris would die on November 6th, 1816. And the way he died was as unusual as the way he lived. He actually died performing surgery on himself. No. (laughs) With a whalebone. What? Um, He was having trouble urinating because he had a (gasps) blockage in his urethra. Oh. Scholars believe also he may have been suffering from prostate cancer. But being a resourceful founding father type of guy, he took a DIY approach uh, to this, and he attempted to treat the blockage by sticking a piece of whalebone up his urethra. And unfortunately, (laughs) this caused a great deal of damage that ultimately led to his death. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh Days after he, he died, his obituary in a Boston newspaper reported that Morris died, quote, from a short but distressing illness. Yeah, I guess. Oh, that pee hole. Yeah, yep. Mm. So a couple things we've learned here mm. uh, during this that maybe you didn't know. But I think the most important thing to take away from this is don't put whale bones in your penis. That's my advice to you. Governor Morris, what a guy. <laughs> I got most of this from Ranker and Wikipedia and I feel fairly certain that I probably would have enjoyed partying with that dude if I was alive in those days. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Not if he's wielding a whalebone. Yeah, that's true. And now, that thing in the middle. Did you know that originally women were banned from ski jumping? It's true. It was because so-called experts thought the sport would damage their uteruses. This ban was only lifted in the Olympics in 2014. As curator, it's my job to stay calm and professional behind the microphone. But in case you hadn't heard, we want a fucking Webby. This is the Box of Oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. 
And here's the thing. If you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames. And living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for The Box of Oddities is provided in part by listeners like you on Patreon. You can support us too. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. We got this email, curator at theboxofoddities.com from Munchies. A little backstory. My wife isn't obsessed with Box of Oddities like I am. No one is perfect. So she doesn't know about the mummy noise. I'm listening to the newest episode, Mummy Mommy, and Jethro plays the mummy sound. And of course, I start cracking up. Long story short, she thought I farted. <laughs> so then I got to pitch the true but lame excuse of, no, sweetie, it wasn't me. It was the recreated voice of an ancient mummy. <laughs> Q 
cue the eye roll and the, is that really the best you can do? Yeah. yeah. Next time I'm in the restroom, I'm sure I'll be hearing lots of mummy noises coming from in there. <laughs> Thanks for all you guys do. You're amazing. Congratulations on your Webby. I had a crazy uncle who, uh, when he would uh, fart, he would always say, did you hear that buck snort? I think that's a Northern Maine thing. It must be. I don't know. I was listening to another podcast not long ago, and someone had used the term poot for a fart. Uh And one of the co-hosts was like, poot, do you mean toot? And I was in my car, you know, talking Mm -hmm. to the the podcast, as you do. I was like, no, poot works, too. Mm -hmm. I've heard poot. Absolutely. I think my favorite, though, is my friend Stephanie's mom always called it fluff. (laughs) Oh, did you fluff? Oh. I had a friend who referred to it as the one cheek squeak. Can we just make a bonus episode of fart euphemisms? Fart euphemisms. Yeah. <laughs> a beefer. Um, anyway, cat. No. <laughs> what you got for me? What? Right. You, what, what? <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> Big thanks to Natalie for sending this topic suggestion on our Freaks group on Facebook. I immediately went to the interwebs <laughs> and learned and wrote and delighted in this story. The German city of Erfurt has existed since the 8th century. It was formerly part of the Holy Roman Empire. And 1184 was a period of great political strife. It was brought on by constant power struggles between nobles and religious leaders of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Erfurt was ruled under King Heinrich, also known as King Henry VI. Erfurt also sounds like a euphemism for a fart. (laughs) It really does. King Henry VI was of the Hohenstaufen dynasty, and he was one of the German kings who reigned over the territory during the Middle Ages. Now, Henry's, which we will call him from now on, Henry, Henry's cousin, Barbarossa, which was also Henry's dad's name. It's very confusing. Anyway, uh, he was ruling as Emperor Frederick I of the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah, I know. Wow. It's all over. The Holy Roman Empire consisted of territories in Western and Central Europe that developed during the early Middle Ages. And it's Interesting, because Holy Roman Empire wasn't actually used until the 13th century. Before that, it was just known as the whole kingdom or universum regnum. In 1174, Barbarossa decided that he wanted to continue his battles with the city-states of Lombardy in northern Italy and with the Pope. And he had asked for Henry's help. Now, Henry had been appointed king of the Romans when he was just four years old, and he started accompanying his father in his campaigns. So he had extensive military experience, and including having taken part in Barbarossa's earlier Italian campaigns. But he was pretty preoccupied with securing his own borders at this point, and he declined to help Barbarossa. I love how these noble people would go to each other to ask help to overthrow a city like they were asking to borrow a lawnmower. Right. And they kind of got mad when they were denied assistance. Mm. Like in this case, Barbarossa's military expedition failed and he really resented Henry for not helping because he felt like if Henry had joined in, it would have been a shoe in. (laughs) 
Um, so he was pissed. And at this time, there were just a multitude of small domains that often clashed in rivalry. And like you said, they were always like, hey, do you want to help me with this guy? Mm. Knowing pretty well that maybe later yeah. they were going to team up with someone else and fuck you over. It happened all the time, all didn't the it? All the time. So one such conflict was between Conrad of Wittelsbach and the Archbishop of Mainz, also known as Conrad I. I mean, can we with one name, please? And Ludwig III, the Landgrave of Thuringia. So it's said that Archbishop of Mainz began the construction of a castle on a hill in Heilengenburg in 1180. And that site was very close to the Thuringia border. So this project was because the Archbishop the archbishop was afraid that Ludwig was going to invade his area. Mm-hmm. But Ludwig saw this as a provocation from the archbishop. Oh, my. So he was just like, I want to protect my own land. But the other guy was like, uh, what are you doing building this military complex so close to my land? Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. so there were a lot of there was a malcommunication. I think that they all could have really benefited from some therapy, maybe some group sessions. Sure. Yeah. Whatever. Sit down. We'll have a meal. We'll talk this over. Right. So this was all going on. It was a very tumultuous time. And Heinrich, or Henry, wanted to settle these conflicts. Basically, he wanted to have like a group session. Mm -hmm. So he called for a diet, which I had to look up. What? A diet? Yes. So a diet. Restricting caloric intake was somehow (laughs) going to bring peace to the area? I guess if you're not getting enough calories, you don't have the energy to fight. (laughs) Okay. Seems like a roundabout way to do things. No. Okay. Um, In politics, a diet is a formal deliberative assembly. So you you get groups, like the heads of groups together uh, for a diet, a.k.a. a a big meeting. I didn't know this. A political meetup. So if they get into a skirmish during that political meetup, is it a crash diet? Okay. Henry had made his way through the territory, and he was calling for this meeting, um, inviting a number of the region's nobles and high-ranking officials. So they were those that were involved in little skirmishes. They were those that were kind of, you know, pissy with each other. Mm-hmm. And there were also other high-ranking officials that he was like, maybe you guys can act as moderators. You know, if we're all there together, then you might know something or you might have an outlook that maybe this guy doesn't. And so he thought it would be a good idea to get everyone together and really just work things this shit out. This is very forward thinking. I think so. So details of the meeting um, are pretty unclear because it was a long time ago. And uh, (laughs) most believe that the meeting took place on one of the higher floors of the St. Peter's Church. But other accounts do claim it happened elsewhere. And it's estimated that uh, it was a very sizable group, at least a hundred so or so people gathered at this meeting. So everyone came together. A lot of people decided that this was a good idea and they wanted to be a part of this town hall kind of event. Um, so they all went to the church. And just as the assembly began, the wooden floor on which the nobles were sitting broke no. under the stress. What? It was a crash diet. <laughs> You may be familiar with how many castle waste disposal systems work, <laughs> but maybe not. Uh, let me let me take a stab at it. Uh, they would just dump shit in the moat, right? 
Um, well, no. Uh, in this case, um, and as well in, as in many cases, there were guard robe shoots that jutted out just a little from the external wall. And the waste would simply fall to the ground or through the chute into a large septic tank that received the waste. Oh, no. So St. Peter's Church was part of a monastery, and it had its own latrine. And this was a room with benches along the walls, and the holes opened into the cesspit below. (laughs) So the cesspit would have to be manually emptied from time to time. Of course, that's a terrible job. And so it was very large. It was a large cesspit, and it was very infrequently emptied. So anyway... (laughs) The wooden floor beams gave way, and the group of German nobility, along with the flooring and the beams, crashed down onto the latrine floor below. The latrine floor then gave way under the impact. And according to contemporary sources, there were more than 60 fatalities when the assembly fell into the cesspit below. Oh, my God. Some of the fatalities, and it's hard to say, uh, would have been from the blows that they received from the debris falling, the building collapsing, essentially. Uh, but it wasn't the whole building. It was just the floor mm-hmm. and and those those trusses below. Right. Um, but it's assumed, and reasonably so, that many drowned in the tons of excrement <sighs> accumulated over the years oh in the cesspit. And these were all noblemen yeah. and royalty. Right. Wow. That's ironic, isn't it? What are the last thoughts that went through their head? Really? But I have purple clothes. (laughs) Oh, now it's covered in shit. Some were lucky. Louis III, who did fall into the cesspool, was able to get out and survived, even though obviously he'd received wounds. Obviously, he'd been within this pool of... Gross. Yeah. Archbishop Conrad also survived sitting on a windowsill, holding onto the stained glass frame until he was rescued. Now, the Chronicle of St. Peter of Erfurt didn't include the shitty details of this incident. (laughs) It described it a bit more elegantly. Uh King Henry was passing through Erfurt, it said, on his way to Poland and found there Conrad of Mainz, who was having a violent dispute with Ludwig of Thuringia. While he was sitting, trying to make peace among them, surrounded by many in a high room, the building suddenly collapsed and many fell in the lower well. Some of them laboriously saved while others suffocated in the mud. In the mud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, those giant cesspools of mud under castles. It happens all the time. All the time. Mud. So it's thought by some that this description of him sitting may actually indicate that he was using the latrine <laughs> at the time, which would have been why he survived, because those no. are the jutting out parts of the building. So Whoa. he would have been like on a perch above. So. So he's sitting on a medieval crapper, Mm -hmm. you know, and he's, you know, essentially using the royal flush and the entire building collapses around him or Mm -hmm. at least the floor. Can you imagine what went through his mind? He's just sitting there on the wall of a a castle with his pants down. He was in the right place for probably the physiological reaction that he would have had Uh because he would poop. 
I, with fear. Yeah, yeah it's is, what I, is I, what I'm getting at. I, I can I can yeah. I can see what you're doing there. Um, I wonder if his poop was the straw that broke the camel's back. Like maybe that was just enough to create the flooring to crash. Well, his his poop didn't add weight to the floor. Well, it, it may have before it slid down. You think that it maybe it yeah. like caught on the yeah. wall or something? Sure. And yeah, yeah, I don't think that's. It was like a, a medieval uh, game of mouse trap. I don't. I I can't see how. But I mean, sure. Okay. Yeah. This so, is this is the world I live in. <laughs> Either way, many did tragically perish, and that is how a medieval septic tank changed history. (laughs) That is a glorious story. And don't you wish that we could get Congress on a high floor somewhere? Stop. (laughs) Stop it. From all parties. You can't. No. Okay. No. Whatever. Anyway, thank you so much, Natalie. I got uh, most of this information from uh, Wikipedia, Amusing Planet, AllThat'sInteresting.com, and (laughs) ToiletGuru.com. That's a thing? It's a thing. ToiletGuru.com. I love it. I love it. Great story. You guys, we talked about doing a live loop show, our next one being on the 6th of June. And oh. We wanted to let you know that we have bumped that date back a little bit. The logistics, is a, they're a little more complicated than we thought. Right, because we're going to be in a different location, and so we have to just make sure that everything is going to go well. We'd rather push it back a bit to make sure that it's at 100% right. than go ahead with it, and it'd be like kind of meh. Yeah, the fact that it's going to be in a remote location, the tattoo studio, it, it, it requires a lot more more technical infrastructure than uh, than we had expected. So, so we apologize if yeah. there's any inconvenience to you because of this change, uh, but we want to make sure that we're giving you the best product possible. Yep. Uh, thank you so much for being patient and uh, stuff. It'll be it'll be sometime uh, toward the end of June. We'll keep you updated on that as of things course. develop. Thanks for hanging out with us. We look forward to it next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the box of oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash BoxOfOdditiesPodcast On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at BoxOfOdditiesPodcast Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Come and knock on our door. door. We've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. Where the kisses are his and his and hers, three's company too. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? 
On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.